This is the North Battleford Christadelphian Study Weekend, November 13th and 14th, 2010. The overall theme is Godly Love, and our speaker is Brother Ken Stiles. And this is Class 3, and the reading was uh, 1 John Chapter 3, and the subtitle of this class is The Wisdom of Godly Love. Brother Ken. Thank you, Brother Tim, and good evening, everyone. We will um, divide this class into two parts. The majority of the class will be spent covering the, uh, the material in the notes under the section of the wisdom of godly love. And then uh, towards the end, we have a, uh, a brief object lesson in which we're going to ask one of the young people to come forward and help us uh, demonstrate a couple of the principles that we've been uh, talking about today. Just a, a quick review of the the principles we looked at and the lessons from the second class, we saw that the love of the Father and the love of the Son converge on the cross. Both are loving and both are giving. And what we've been asked to do is to add our love to theirs. We saw as well that God's expectation is that we will manifest His love. We saw that in 1 John 4, that his expectation that we will manifest his love so that when others see our love, they are seeing his love. And we saw it as well in John 15, when Christ said, You are my friends, if you do whatsoever I have commanded you, and he had just commanded them to love one another. With his same love, his laying down our life love, His greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. In Ephesians 3, we saw that the love of the Son is intended to become our love. That is how we become filled with all the fullness of God, by learning to love as they love. In John 4, we briefly looked at the fact that love is the key to our spiritual growth. Greater love on our part will be responded with greater understanding. In the parable of the, uh, of the Good Shepherd, so to speak, we saw how godly, godly love includes three parts. This is how God defines love. And it's differentiated from human love. The first is that a death to sin must take place. And again, just to underscore, that doesn't mean we die literally. But it means we put the needs of others before our own. It has to be done willingly so that others can benefit spiritually. And God loves this. We also saw how the cross represents to us the lesson of what needs to be done to sin. And godly love is how we do it. Dying to sin and living to righteousness. We also saw that Christ's expectation is that the highest form of love, the laying down our life love, aligns perfectly with that of his Father. Both the Father and the Son are saying to us, our love for you needs to become your love for each other. Now we said in class one or two, I'm not sure that we would uh, spend a few minutes in tonight's class, and we'll, we'll see it again tomorrow. I have found it helpful to now go back and look at some of the lives of the faithful men and women in the Old Testament especially, to see how godly love shows up in their life you won't find the words godly love anywhere in the life of Ruth 
or Jonathan, or David, or Esther, or Mordecai. But once we look at the details that are recorded about their actions, what we're going to find is their lives were permeated with godly love. Take, for example, Ruth. If you turn back to uh, chapter 1, some of us probably can recite this by heart. If you can, in verse 16 and 17, you don't need to. But godly love, the way God defines love, was not first practiced by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not unique to the New Testament. She is a Gentile by birth. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3 says she is to be excluded from the congregation because we know what the women of Moab were like. Their character was clearly revealed in the incident at uh, the Baal of Peor. But that does not represent this faithful young woman named Ruth. Her decision to return with Naomi to Israel was foolish in the eyes of the world. And, and godly love oftentimes will appear to the world to be foolish. Why would you ever want to go to a land in which you're not welcome and not supposed to be there? To take care of an older woman with no prospect of ever finding another husband because your kind of people are despised in that land. So Naomi had no natural, sorry, Ruth had no natural reasons to return with Naomi. There would be no husband, there would be no income, there would be a constant threat of being mistreated in a foreign land. We know that from Judges 19, and we know that from Ruth chapter 2, in which Boaz had to warn his own men not to mistreat Ruth. But in verses 16 and 17, we see Ruth de Ruth's declaration of her godly love. Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people. Thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die. And there will I be buried. Yahweh do so to me and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. You see, what Ruth is doing in expressing her godly love is she is uniting herself to the hardships of Naomi. And Naomi returns to Israel facing bitter hardships, which is why she tries to convince both Orpah and Ruth not to return with her. And Ruth turns to Naomi and says, Your bitter hardships will be my bitter hardships. Naomi and Elimelech had made poor spiritual decisions, leaving Naomi with great difficulties upon her return. But Ruth clings to Naomi. She freely chooses to stay with Naomi, choosing that way of life, embracing what will become a very difficult life for her because she is crucifying her flesh. She is dying the death that godly love calls for. She is putting the needs of Naomi ahead of her own needs. And you notice her love for Naomi is unlimited when she makes her declaration, whatever it is you need, wherever it is you go, 
I will take care of you and I will stay with you. Ruth understood God's definition of a self-sacrificing love, like the Good Shepherd. She understood a death needed to take place. It needed to be done willingly so that Naomi would benefit. You see, this is what a godly love looks like when it's put into practice. She didn't just speak her love to Naomi in, in tongue or word. Her love for Naomi was in, was in deed and in truth. And you notice her love for Naomi arose out of her faith. If you looked in, uh, in chapter 2, when Boaz recognizes that the, the wonder of this young woman is on a parallel with Abraham, no less, and that she was willing to leave her father and her mother and unite herself to her mother-in-law out of a desire to serve her. Ruth understood the power of the cross, putting the flesh to death, condemning sin, and saving people. She had, as it were, the same godly love as the Lord Jesus Christ. You couldn't love Naomi with a greater love than Ruth showed toward her. In the midst of her personal crisis, this is Ruth's personal crisis, being a widow, having no means to support herself in Israel, being at the mercy of others and leaving her family behind, she shows her godly love because godly love is not something we do when everything else is taken care of. Godly love is something we show and something we do when someone else has a need. The lesson is we need to learn to lay down our life to serve others as we've seen. Regardless of what's happening to me or what effect it will have on me. It would have been far easier for Ruth to remain in Moab. We need to continuously look to serve others, to do what's best for their spiritual well-being and not be preoccupied with our own misfortunes. And, and the, marvel, the marvel of this young Moabite woman is she brought her godly love with her. She understands this concept before she sets a single foot in the land of Israel. So it's not a difficult concept to understand. The challenge becomes in putting it into practice. She entered Israel as a daughter of, of God, not as a disciple of Naomi, but as one who put her strength and her faith and her refuge in her God so that her commitment to Naomi was bound up in her commitment to love and serve God. And that's how we need to see our love for each other. Our love for one another is not independent of our love for God. Our love for each other is bound up in our love and our service to our Heavenly Father. But Ruth isn't the only one that can teach us about godly love from the Old Testament. Come to 1 Samuel 18. Remember that Marvelous incident that takes place right after the giant Goliath is slain. And Jonathan would have been in the company of those who heard the conversation between Saul and David. And we read in 1 Samuel 18, beginning at verse 1, It came to pass, when he made an end of speaking unto Saul, this is David, that the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 
And Saul took David that day, and he would not let him go no more to home, sorry, no more home to his father's house. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his girdle. And and you ask yourself, there is Jonathan giving David his robe and his armor and his sword and his bow and his girdle. What is Jonathan doing by all these actions? And the answer is, he is showing David his love. Because Jonathan loved, he gave. He saw in Jonathan the man that Samuel had proclaimed would take over the throne from David. He could see the faith of David portrayed in the slaying of the giant. And he could see how this young man, in his willingness to act by faith, who understood God's purpose and would take the head of Goliath to Jerusalem, to likely be buried in the same place where Abraham had offered Isaac, foreshadowing the future death of sin, uh, overcome by the, the death of the Messiah in the same place. But whatever was said between Jonathan, sorry, between David and Saul at the end of chapter 17, the response is that Jonathan's soul was knit to David's because he loved him as his own soul. And as a result, they make a covenant, a covenant of love in verse 3. And it's reiterated again, as we know, in chapter 20 at verse 17. You see, Jonathan is the first in Israel to declare his allegiance to the future king of Israel. That's what he's telling David that day. Now, that's the story that we're all familiar with. Let's go back and look at the pieces of godly love that we see in this story. And we'll see how the power of godly love was at work in the life of Jonathan. First of all, he is dying a death. He is taking his own interests and his own needs. He has been promised the throne. In fact, Saul will challenge Jonathan in the future. And his love and devotion to David. Don't you know you are to be the next king? And Jonathan takes that future rulership and the future prestige. He's a man who has been groomed to be the next king. And he sees David and what he can do for the nation. Knowing that God has told Saul the throne would go to another. And, Dave, and Jonathan puts to death those natural desires to be the next king. And he does it willingly so that David and the rest of the nation will benefit. Secondly, do you see the connection with the second commandment? To love our neighbor as ourself. Jonathan puts himself in David's position. And he said, what would I need if I was in David's position in chapter 18, verse 1? This young man has just slain the giant. This young man is likely the next, the future king of Israel. What would I need if I was going to love my neighbor as myself? What I would need is for a person like Jonathan to give me his wholehearted love and devotion and commitment and allegiance. And that's exactly what Jonathan gives to David because he was loving his neighbor as himself. 
He was treating David just as Jonathan would wish to be treated if the roles were reversed. Saul will become appalled when he finds out what Jonathan has done. And he will hate David for the very reason that Jonathan loves David. Jonathan, how can you forego the throne? Don't you see what you're giving up? It's contained in chapter 20 at verse 31. We won't take the, uh, the time to look it up. We're all familiar, hopefully, with the story. You see, Saul rejected the principle of laying down your life for your brother. Jonathan looks at David as a result of the giant being slain, and he tells Jonathan, I'm yours. Saul looks at David as a result of him having slain the giant, and he says, you're mine. And he wouldn't let him return home. And there's a stark contrast between the two men, between Jonathan and Saul. And it's showing us the difference between one who has embraced godly love as a way of life and one who is not. Thirdly, do you see how Jonathan's love for David was godly love, not human love? It was not a relationship in which if you do for me, I'll do for you. Jonathan devotes himself and gives his allegiance and loyalty over to David at the beginning of chapter 18 before David has even had opportunity to talk to Jonathan. There was no reciprocating aspect in this relationship that they would have. Jonathan's love for David was a pure godly love. It was not human love. It wasn't predicated upon what David would do for him or what David would eventually do for him. You see, that's human love. When I do for you with the understanding that you will at some point do for me, that can be a very beneficial relationship in the world. Business is, is oftentimes rooted in that kind of a relationship. But that is not godly love. Fourthly, do you see how there was no limit to Jonathan's love for David. Excuse me. Do you remember when Jonathan came to David in the wood in chapter 20? Saul has been chasing him. He's put the priests of Nob to death. David is convinced that Saul is going to catch him and slay him. He's at a very low point in his life. In fact, he pleads with Jonathan, if you're going to betray me, please slay me now. Don't turn me over to your father. And Jonathan has to remind David of his love for him. And in verse 4 of chapter 20, Jonathan tells David, there is no limit to godly love. Except he doesn't use that phrase. He tells David, whatever you need, I am prepared to do that for you. Because he understood that when a person is in need, whatever it takes, is what I am prepared to do on your behalf. And you can imagine how helpful that kind of love and that kind of assurance would have been for David. It didn't solve David's problems. Godly love does not solve another person's problems and trials and suffering that they go through. But godly love assures them that you will not go through this trial alone. I will stand right with you. And it doesn't matter the shame. 
it doesn't matter the cost. Because godly love puts the needs of others before our own. The fifth aspect of Jonathan's love is that he also had godly love, not surprisingly, for Saul. Which is why Jonathan is such an excellent example of a man who lived by godly love. One man is righteous, the giant slayer, David. The other man is wicked. Yet, Jonathan loves them both. Now, the love for Saul is not as obvious in the record, but it's just as outstanding. How do you love? A brother like Saul. How do you show him godly love? When he runs hot and cold in the truth. And he is repeatedly giving himself over to sin's power. How do you love a person like that? Well, you certainly don't give up on him. You don't abandon a brother like Saul. You do all you can to save him, to win him back to righteousness. You lay down your life for him. And you do it willingly so that hopefully he will benefit. And this is exactly what Jonathan does for Saul. He will repeatedly appeal to Saul to leave off his hatred of David. Jonathan will even put himself in harm's way in appealing to his father to change his ways. In the end, he's stuck by Saul even till Gilboa. He never joined in the pursuit against David. But he stood with his father, with Saul, not because he had blind allegiance, but because he loved him with godly love. And he did all he could, in his case, literally laying down his life for a man he loved. David's love for Saul as an aside, is equally outstanding. He will spend ten years roaming the wilderness as a fugitive. And you ask yourself, what is David doing during these ten years or so, wandering the wilderness as a fugitive? And the answer is, he is loving Saul. He is doing all he can for Saul's sake to win him back to righteousness. So that when he writes the Song of the Bow in 2 Samuel chapter 1, after Saul and Jonathan have been slain on Gilboa, David can sincerely and with absolute integrity mourn the death of Saul. Because he has been loving Saul all his life. He had spent, he had spent all that time in the wilderness being hunted down by this man but he could with absolute integrity mourn his death because he had been trying to win Saul back to righteousness. And in the end, once Saul was dead, it was evident that that was not going to be possible. He never turned on Saul, just like Christ would not turn on Judas, or he wouldn't let any group turn on Saul. It's not natural to love a man like Saul. Don't read through the record and say, well, we're just not given enough information to understand how David could maintain such a loving attitude towards Saul when Saul so desperately mistreated him. And you think of the brother or sister in your life who you think has mistreated you 
Don't think too long because we don't want to have evil thoughts. Hopefully you have long since forgiven them. But I can just about guarantee whatever mistreatment any of us have ever received in ecclesial life, ever, ever, it pales by comparison to what Saul and how Saul was mistreating David. But David never wavered in his love for Saul. We call it one of those, those wonderful scriptural scenes that takes place in the cave of Engedi. When there is David and all his men are hiding in the cave and Saul comes in to, to find rest. And the opportunity is perfect to take Saul's life. And what does David do? He holds a Bible class, as we like to refer to it. And the subject is godly love. You do not slay your brother. It doesn't matter how he has mistreated you. It doesn't matter. You lay down your life for him so that you cut off the skirt. And even that pained David's heart. So that when he walks away and he's far enough away, you can appeal to him out of love. Seeking to win him back to righteousness. Foolishness in the eyes of his men from a human standpoint. And godly love oftentimes will appear that way. But it is a willingness to lay down our life even for those who have mistreated us. It won't permanently change Saul's heart. Like Jonathan, David was only able to win a temporary change. But do you see how the two men, Jonathan and David, are both showing the principles of godly love in how they treat Saul? They won't change him ultimately, but it doesn't mean they didn't stop trying because they both loved him with the same love. They both understood the wisdom of godly love, and it really is a wisdom, brethren and sisters and young people. There is great wisdom in God-defining love as both a willingness to die to sin on one hand and doing it for the sake of others on the other. It unites what we say are the two fundamental principles of discipleship. Crucifying the flesh and becoming a servant of others. Recall the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 10, verse 45, where Mark writes, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to serve, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, this is how God changes our character. He doesn't change us by simply staying in the truth for 20 years, and you finally sit through enough classes and you, you hear enough things to where finally you become a different person. God changes us. And the change can begin as soon as we align ourselves with these principles. It can begin as soon as we come to understand that when we devote ourselves to living for others, becoming their servants by first putting to death our own desires our own interests, our own list of things that we need to get done before the sun goes down. When those become of secondary importance and the needs of others take on primary importance, now God can make us into new and different men and women. It's how He saves us. It's how He's able to transform us. Not by any merit of our own, but a life devoted to dying to sin and serving others. 
will transform our characters. It will make us into new husbands and new wives. It will make us into new brethren in the ecclesias and new sisters. It, it really will change us. Because what God is telling us is if you want to learn to stop walking after the flesh, and, and you want to start walking after the Spirit, then learn to crucify your own desires for the sake of others. If you want to break sin's hold over you and no longer be dominated by it, so in our relationships, and our marriages, or with our children, if we're given to anger or we're given to ridicule or whatever it is, God says if you want to break that hold over you, then take your life, which sin values more than anything else in the world, and you all realize, don't you, that I am the most important person in this room. I don't know who's in second place, but my mind tells me every day I'm the most important person in this world. God says, take that natural mind, and if you want to change it into a different mind, put your own needs to death and begin to live for the sake of others. And that will change us into different men and women because we begin to live for the spiritual well-being of others. And what this principle of love shows is that the power of godly love is greater than the power of sin. And if you don't circle anything else in the notes, identify that principle. Because we're going to see it in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see it in his appeal to us. The power of godly love is greater than the power of sin. The ruler of this world, which by our nature has power over us, can be broken by our love for the Father. The proof of this is found in combining two passages. The first is in John chapter 12. Again, we're very familiar with these passages. Recall that the prince of this world that Jesus refers to is sin. So we read in John 12, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Who was the prince of this world? The prince was coming after Christ. Sin in all of its manifestation. And how is it going to be cast out? We go on in verse 32 and 33. And if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So the prince of this world, sin and all of its manifestations, is about to be cast out. How? I am about to die on a cross. Now combine that with John 14, verse 30. And what we see here is Jesus is declaring that sin has no power over me. Hereafter, in verse 30 of John 14, I will not talk much with you. For the prince of this world cometh. Here comes sin, represented by Judas and the soldiers, and, and all of the evil that was going to be unleashed that night against the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus said, it had nothing in me. 
You look in the RSV, it says, it has no power over me. Well, why didn't sin that was coming to put him to death and all the evil that it represented, why didn't it have any pardon or any power over Christ? Is it because sin didn't dwell in his members? Absolutely not. He had the same tendency to sin as we do. And what Jesus is telling us is that there was something more powerful than sin at work in his life. And what was more powerful than sin is in verse 31 of chapter 14. The power of godly love. That the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. And what Jesus is telling us is what was true in his life need be no different in our life. Sin was there. It was there in the temptations that he bore, bearing our nature, and that he suffered through. It was there in the evil and the animosity that was exhibited against him that night. But you notice Jesus said, sin has nothing in me, it has no power over me, because of the love that I have for my Father. This was his declaration to his disciples. My love for my Father has rendered sin powerless in my life. Not because he possessed the Holy Spirit. Not because he was part of some triune God. Not because temptations weren't real temptations. They were just recorders as as if they were. But sin had no power in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, not because it wasn't there, but because there was a greater power at work in his life than the power of sin. And that was the power of his love for his Father. And you see, brethren and sisters and young people, why we say the power of godly love can be greater than the power of sin in our life. It doesn't mean we will be sinless. But it does mean when sin presents itself in our life, we don't have to give in to it. We don't have to allow it to be our master and dominate over us. It doesn't have to rule our relationships. It doesn't have to cause us to be those who give fits, are given to fits of anger or whatever else the situation is. In the life of Christ was the enmity of Genesis 3.15. Sin pitted in battle. It was the love of the Son of the Father that prevailed over the sin and the battle that existed. He had overcome the prince of this world by his love for his Father so that the world may know. Not so that we sit back and applaud how thankful we are that the love for the Father overcame sin. But that we will engage ourselves in the same battle using the same power of godly love. That's the principle he's asking us to get hold of. So that if I want to be helpful to my brethren and sisters, sin must first be put to death in my life. You see, I can't let sin dominate my life and then turn around and try to be helpful to you. It doesn't work. It, it, there is no power, there's no, there's, it, it's not effective in bringing into your situation what you really need. And, and notice back in chapter 13 at verse 35, 
There was a witness of this love associated with it. By this he says, again, words that we're familiar with, shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. When we say the power of godly love is greater than the power of sin, that's true in concept. Well, what does it look like in practice? How is it that the love of God can separate us from other peoples and other churches? We really should be different. You see, godly love will stop the bickering that typically arises among a group of people. And if you're not sure what it looks like, come back to my ecclesia in Royal Oak. Because <laughs> we have the same situation as every other group of people around the world who are struggling under the difficulties of the flesh and coming to grips with living by the principles of our Lord. But godly love will stop the bickering. It, it will resolve whatever the difficulties are in a loving way. And it will encourage all to choose righteousness. But we know from our own experiences how powerful sin can be when godly love is missing in a relationship. When there is an absence of godly love in a marriage, sin results. Sin reigns. And the marriage suffers badly. Two people can say things against each other and, and do things to each other that are altogether unloving and insidious. The, the trials of marriage will reveal the kind of love that exists between the husband and wife. If my love for my wife is a human love, she does for me, I do for her. She helps me, I help her. If that's the love that I have for my wife, the trials that come along in our marriage, we will never survive. But if my love for my wife and her love for me is that I will love my spouse, not because he deserves it, but because he needs it, especially when sin has taken hold in his character. Now that's a different response to the very same situation. And we live in a day and age in which the trials of our marriages, the trials of ecclesial life, have got to be responded to by godly love. Because otherwise our relationships will take a severe beating in an ecclesia, when godly love is missing in the relationship between members, it, it shows up in how we treat each other. And sin wins. It doesn't matter the issue. It doesn't matter the source of conflict. Sin wins in that situation. One person won't speak to another person. One group of brethren won't work with another group of brethren. And they've been working together all this time. But when godly love is missing, sin fills that void. And the result is that there is a great deal of mistrust and accusations. So when we find ourselves in these situations, it's critical that godly love be reinserted into these relationships. That, that, that we acknowledge the sin that has taken place. And, and we admit to ourselves, even if no one else will admit, and, and whoever's involved, at least we admit to ourselves that I have not been bringing godly love into this situation. And henceforth, I will. 
I don't know how others will respond or react, but in terms of my contribution in the future to this situation, I will bring the love of God. I will consider the needs and the interests of others to be more important than my own. I will lay down my life for my brethren and sisters, and I will do it willingly, and I will do it by faith, trusting that God will bless those efforts, because I am bringing my life into conformity with what he has commanded. But if we do this, the lesson of Scripture is that breaches can be healed, and by this, all men will know that we are, in fact, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn back to 1 John 3, another example of where you won't find the words, godly love is more powerful than sin in your Bible. But see, in fact, if this is not the same lesson that John is teaching in chapter 3. He begins chapter 3 of 1 John by saying, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew not him. So he begins with the love of God. In verse 5, he then, as we know, begins a discussion of the work of the cross. How Jesus, in verse 5, came to overcome overcome the devil or sin. In verse 8, it says Jesus was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. And in our first principle classes and in our seminar classes, we sit down with interested friends and show how there is your definition of the devil. It's the works of the devil. It's the sin. Jesus came to take away the sins. He came to destroy the works of the devil. But in this same section now, John will show us the application of this doctrine and the impact it ought to have on us. John says there are two kinds of people. There are those who follow after righteousness and those who follow after the devil or sin. And he differentiates, as we know, between the two kinds of people, describing how they have two entirely different kinds of walk. The first category are the children of the devil, those who commit or practice sin. And if you haven't seen this in the past, it's worth noting that that Greek word there for commits or practices, as as it is in some versions. It shows up in verse uh, 8, for instance, he that committeth sin. That that word is the Greek word porio, and it means to practice. So in verse 8, when it says, sorry, in verse 9, when it says, whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, it doesn't mean you've never committed a sin in your life. It means you don't practice sin. That's not your main walk in life. You will sin, but that is not your main walk in life. So that those who are born of God do not sin as their practice. Secondly, if there is a children of the devil as the first category, the second category is the children of God who commit or practice righteousness. Righteousness is their main focus. For instance, in verse 7, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth, or practiseth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. So John is contrasting two groups of people. It's the two seeds. It's the seed of the woman and it's the seed of the serpent. One practice or devote themselves to practicing righteousness. The others don't. And those who practice righteousness do so because they recognize that Jesus came to take away sin, to destroy the works of the devil. So to continue to practice sin 
to continue to let sin dominate in their life would live in opposition to the very purpose Christ came. And that was to destroy the works of the devil. And it's what he devoted his life to. So the children of God say, if that is what he devoted his life to, I am certainly not going to live in opposition to it. But the key point we don't want to miss is what differentiates the two groups in what John is writing. What differentiates the group called the children of the devil from the group called the children of God? In other words, what determines who we are? It isn't our baptism. It isn't our first name. It isn't our last name. It isn't the position we do or don't hold in the ecclesia. What differentiates or determines whether we are children of God or the children of the devil? And what is John's answer in verse 10? The answer, he says, is love. Now, you won't find the word for love in verse 10, but what do you see? Recall the various aspects of godly love. Do you see the two great commandments in verse 10? Only they're written in the negative instead of the positive. In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doesn't love God with all his heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Only here John is using a synonym. Whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God. And whosoever doesn't love his neighbor as himself, only John says, and whosoever loveth not his brother, neither is he of God. So you see, what differentiates the children of God from the children of the devil? is whether or not we practice love. So we read in verse 11, For this is the message that ye heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then in verse 14, John identifies the enormity of the impact this should have on us. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He's not talking about the judgment seat. He's not talking about being raised and being given immortality. He's drawing a defining line in our life. Just as the defining line divided the children of God from the children of the devil, we have passed into life, he says. From death into life. Based upon whether or not we have learned to love our brethren. And notice in verse 16, the three loves. We talked about the love of the Father, the love of the Son, and our adding our love to their love. Hereby perceive we the love of God. There's the first one. Because He, Jesus, laid down His life for us. There's the second one. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And when all three of those loves are in alignment, then God can do great things in our life. But until we add our love to their love, we severely restrict God's ability. If you're still not convinced that the power of godly love is greater than the power of sin, for the sake of time, we will give you a homework assignment. Go back sometime tonight or tomorrow and read through Romans chapter 8 
And you will see in Romans chapter 8, where Paul identifies the same three loves. Only the challenge for us is that he doesn't always say the love of God. And he doesn't always say the love of Christ. What he says is giving of his son. And what he says is the son laying down his life. But there is the love of God in verse 32. And there is the love of the son in verse 34. And Paul says, if we will add our love in verse 35, there is absolutely, absolutely, Paul says, nothing on this earth that can overcome us. And he uses that word in verse 37. He says we become super conquerors, is what the Greek means in verse 37. When the love of the Father and the love of the Son are in alignment, and we add our love to their love. There is nothing on earth, he says, that can separate us from God in that situation. Not tribulation, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, peril, or sword. It doesn't matter what trials come into our life. It doesn't matter what sin may may present itself against us. When our love is added to the love of the Father and the Son, we become super conquerors. It's the the English actually in verse, verse 37. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So we're going to take the last couple of minutes and we're going to ask one of the young people to come forward. But let me first do a minute of explanation. For those who are doing the ice cream social, is that still on the agenda, brother? Don't get the ice cream out of the freezer just yet. Do you recall the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's a parable about love. Because in the exchange between Jesus and the lawyer, the lawyer asks Jesus about love. And Jesus turns the question against or, or back to him. And he says, what does the law say? So before you put your Bibles away, turn to Leviticus 19, verse 18. You see, the lawyer had rightly figured out that the way to life was through love and loving your neighbor as yourself. So that Jesus compliments the lawyer and says, you have answered rightly in this exchange. When the lawyer had said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself, Jesus said, you have answered rightly. And then the lawyer wants to justify himself. He says, ah, yes, but who is my neighbor? You see, the the circle of those whom the lawyer loved was a very small circle. And, And Jesus is now looking to expose this. But if you look in Leviticus 19, from where this is quoted, what are the two things you cannot hold on to at the same time? What are the two things you cannot hold on to at the same time? What's the first thing he speaks of in this verse? 
Sorry? Vengeance. Or a grudge. Does he say that? Don't bear any grudge against the children. So don't you look to take vengeance and don't hold any grudge against the children of thy people. Because you can't hold on to a grudge and love your neighbor at the same time. Now, who knows what this is? In the symbol, of course. Now, it's, it's close, but that's not what we're looking for. Excuse me? Love. Now, why would this be love? <laughs> You're absolutely right. You see, this in simple represents godly love. Poor representation, I agree. But I'll prove it to you. Is not this a room full of godly people? And do not godly people have smiles brought to their face when they see or receive godly love? So watch what happens. See, you can't see the smiles like I can see. Big smile right here. <laughs> so this represents godly love. You don't get one, by the way. Right? I've got one of these for you instead. My apologies. Who knows what this is? Somebody has an idea. What is it? It is. Actually, it's a foosball, isn't it? Every other night of this year, it will be a foosball, but it isn't tonight. What do you think this is? For a closer look. And you can pass it around. That, you see, is a grudge. A grudge starts out small, does it not? In fact, it's so small and convenient, you can put it in your pocket and you can take it wherever you go. You can take it to bed at night. You can put it under your pillow. You can take it to work with you in the morning. You can take it in your car. Wherever you go, you can take your grudge. And, by the way, you can throw it away if you want. Now, what do you think this is? <laughs> this is a grudge that I didn't throw away when it was real small. I kept it. And now it's so big, it takes up half the bed. And I can't find a garbage can to put it in because it's grown to be so big. Now, this is where I need a volunteer. Veronica, are you still with us? And are you still game? Remember what we said. Godly love and a grudge. We're going to see... Can you hold that for me? We're going to see if Veronica can hold on to a grudge and give out godly love at the same time. Now... You can't pour out your godly love. And you can't offer it to people and have them take your godly love from you. Because godly love is something you have to give. 
So, now why do you think we have taped this vase? <laughs> because I belong to the same family of those who have also tried object lessons. Haven't burnt any place down yet, but I've come close. So we're going to see if Veronica is able to give out godly love and hold a grudge, sorry, at the same time. Before you go, how many think she'll be able to do it? You have about ten fans in the audience. Okay, so let's see if Veronica can hand out godly love and hold on to her grudge at the same time. There's one. There's two. Good job, Veronica. Let's give Veronica a big hand. <laughs> Thanks very much. Veronica, you can put the ball down, and we'll, we'll have the, the jar of, uh, of kisses in the back for uh, everyone at the end. You can put them on top of your ice cream. But, but hopefully we can appreciate the lesson that uh, God is encouraging us. Thanks very much. To let go of the grudge. Because... Holding on to the grudge and trying to display the kind of love that we've looked at today is, uh, is nigh impossible. So, thank you very much.